Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Groundswell, an open-ended exploration into the sustainability and climate movement and my quest to document conversations with bright minds in the space. I'm your host, Danny Kirk, and today I'm joined by Anne Jordan and Sarah Konzemius. Anne and Sarah are the founders and owners of Alum Advising, a consulting firm that works with the energy industry through cutting-edge social and data science research services. Some of the things we speak about in this episode are the human dimension of the energy transition, equitable access to technology, challenges that we face moving towards our climate and equity goals, and much more. And Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks, we're excited to be here. Yeah, thank you for having us. Glad to be here. Alum is 10 years old with roughly 40 people on staff and growing, works in multiple states, and doesn't seem to be slowing down anytime soon. How did you both first meet and what was the origin story of Alum 10 years ago? It's a great question, Danny, and it's kind of a funny one because I think depending on the day, we might tell it a little differently. But um, but for the sake of this podcast, you know, Sarah and I actually work together. Uh, we both come from different backgrounds. Sarah's in program implementation at the time, mine in research and evaluation, and we work together at a an evaluation firm. And uh, we're we're doing all of this really interesting work at the time and enjoying ourselves, but also felt that there was maybe an opportunity for us to capture a different sort of corner of the market in the work that we were interested in doing. And um, in particular, really centering human needs and energy transformations and kind of expanding the body of work that we are, that we are doing. And so that was sort of the impetus for Alum initially. But, uh, you know, I feel like that, that response may undersell it a bit. I think our vision was much grander, and I'll let Sarah kind of jump in on that as well. Yeah. It, um, well, 10 years ago, our vision was about where we are today. Um, so we, when we started the company, we, we definitely had a vision to have a full team supporting this work. I think um, what we didn't expect to see what's happening today in the industry with all the investments federally and all the emphasis on um, equity and a just transition. But we set up the company with those being key parts of our mission and vision. So I'm sort of unable to predict the future, but I think aligned well um, in our in our sort of origin story with where things are today in the industry, which has been pretty cool to see. Looking back on 10 years now, what are you both uh, each most proud of accomplishing at Alum today? Well, I'll kind of pick up on what Sarah said, you know, just now. The uh, I think the thing we're most proud of is how we were able to, I'm speaking for both of us, but Sarah, of course, yeah. you can speak for yourself <laughs> too. Um, is being able to really lean into our mission. You know, 10 years ago, uh, no one was really talking about equity and energy. Uh, really, no one was talking about the human experience in energy. I mean, our, our focus as an industry has been largely on technology, on these large systems, on the electric grid, and managing those things in order to reach our energy efficiency, demand response, or resiliency goals greenhouse gas and climate goals. We kind of took a different tack and said, you know, we're building these systems, we're building these technologies to better the lives of people. And in order to do that and to do that well and effectively, we need to center people in our questions. And again, that may seem a little obvious for folks who work outside of energy. You know, folks in consumer products, for example, will tell you that the customer 
is the center of every question, that it's their needs that we're meeting. But that hasn't been true for energy. And so our goal really was to think from the vantage point of how are we bettering communities? How are we bettering our society with these programs? And then to take the experiences of individuals, of communities, and as well as those who are marginalized very, very seriously in providing recommendations and strategic consulting to our clients who are developing programs, policies, et cetera. Um, that really struck a chord at the time, but I feel like I would say in the last like four or five years, we're very much in the zeitgeist of what our industry is trying to address right now. And I don't think we fully knew it at the time. We just felt passionately about doing it. And um, I think that's something to be really proud of. And we have a huge team who is also passionate about it at this point in time. And that's always humbling as an employer to have a, a team signing up with you to do this thing that you're doing. Yeah. I think that for me, everything Anne said, so I won't repeat it, but um, adding on is also related to the team that when we started the company, we had a very specific vision for how we wanted to make sure the experience was for folks working at our organization, especially in consulting, which can be very hard driving and um, sort of a high pressure career. And we had a very um, specific vision, you know, trying to make sure people could balance this type of work with other things they wanted to do in their life. We came from consulting backgrounds where we worked sort of typical, very long weeks that you hear about um, in consulting and and wanted to make sure our workplace was one that people felt fulfilled in, felt it didn't sort of consume everything about them. They felt proud to be there and that we could offer um, really what we consider exceptional benefits for our size when we started and continue to grow what we offer the team over time. And I think we've done that. It's done more work, I think, than we expected. You kind of think like, we have a culture, here it is, and it just should feed itself, but it does not. Um, but I feel, um, in addition to everything Anne said, I think we we both feel immensely proud of the attention and the, the um, intentionality we've put into the team side of it. And similarly, you know, a lot of things that companies had to reckon with over COVID and the things they had to change and adapt to, we had already been doing as an organization prior to COVID. So I think um, that's another, the other piece I'm particularly proud of. And I, I think we both are looking back over the last 10 years. Now, you both mentioned the human dimension. Let's talk about the energy transition and how it is relative to those human dimensions. You know, in our field, it is easy to look at shiny objects, technology, um, tons of capital that is going into the industry. How are you all viewing the human dimensions of the energy transition that we're going through today? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Well, uh, you know, the question that we're always trying to answer as an organization is uh, who are we serving with these technologies and investments and to what end? So what are we attempting to achieve? And are the benefits that we are generating from these investments being equally shared among the societies, the, whole, the entire society that is meant to be served by them? And so when we think about um, the human dimensions, it really is about Re, again, reframing those questions, really centering those questions and everything that we're looking to achieve. 
and asking, you know, the technocrats and um, policymakers and others who are building all of these new um, and very important and critical technologies to also answer that question as well. Um, you know, we have a tendency again to a really kind of uh, meander, as you mentioned, Danny, and like sort of focus on the newest and latest and coolest technology. Uh, but we need a through line as an industry in order to really meet our goals. People need to care about the technologies we're trying to put into market. They need to be useful and beneficial to them. They need to enhance their lives, make their lives easier, not create more difficulty. And uh, that ensures that technology is successful. Uh, and it's a necessary component of taking all of this wonderful thinking and the inventiveness and this capital to market and making sure that we, you know, build these thriving communities on the back of actually successful technologies, not just the sort of latest thing. Uh, Sarah, what would you add to that? Yeah, I would add it. It, it is just an add that it, that's one of the challenges of our industry, too, is the technologies that have typically or historically enabled the energy industry um, were you know, they 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 were such a part of people's lives, but it wasn't something you really engaged with in a two-way manner, right? Like you have lights in your house, you turn them on, you plug things in, and you're not thinking about it beyond that. The other technologies, furnaces, air conditioners, people are only thinking about it when they don't work. Um, and we we need people to be much more engaged with the technology and the grid if we're going to sort of achieve the big clean energy goals that we have. But we've never asked people to be engaged with the grid before. And it, these are all behavior-enabled technologies, ultimately. And so it definitely requires a different way of thinking. As Anne mentioned, people and consumer products have thought about this for a long time because they're sort of selling something you don't need, in theory. The, the, the energy, you know, the, the electric system, the energy system, the utilities have... The, you. You have no choice. You need it. You're not like opting in to buy it. So it's a, it's a transition for them to be thinking about how do I engage with customers, with human beings in a way that acknowledges that I need something from them. They need something from me. It's it's a two way transaction transaction in a way that it hasn't been before. And you know, again, echoing what Anne said is you know people have so much that they're worrying about in their lives that they're trying to do and achieve and, and, you know, just to, to enjoy, to, um, you know, have fulfilling lives. And these technologies have to solve for, you know, the things that they're worried about and thinking about. It can't just be for the good of the grid. And a lot of times, you know, people come into this with this. I've, I've looked at so many technologies like this. I'm sure Anne is nodding where someone came up with something. They're like, this is going to be so cool. Everyone's going to want to see the power they're drawing at every minute of every day in their home. And it turns out, in fact, no one wants to see <laughs> the power they're drawing at every minute and every day of their home. So it, it was not a useful technology for the lives people are trying to live. And it, it was this assumption that we can make people care about what we're selling because we care. But, you know, this this is a whole new relationship uh, between the grid and human beings. It also kind of comes to mind that things are changing as well. What is defined as good. Um, one thing in particular, like antitrust law used to be really good. And now with technology companies and things like that, it's just less effective because 
yeah, it's serving the consumer, but it's also not so good for other people. But hey, technically it's all legal and everything's fine. Are there any things that come to mind that seem to be shifting in society, in the marketplace, as far as those human dimensions go, that seem to be changing to you all? Oh, geez, that's an excellent question and one that requires, I think, a little um, <laughs> thought. I mean, there are so many things in terms of uh, what is shifting in the marketplace from a policy perspective. I mean, certainly the environment we're operating in now is incredibly different than the environment we were operating in even just three years ago. Um, the consumer is fundamentally different um, than they were just a year ago, two years ago. So um, one of the things that I think comes to mind um, that's top of mind for me in working with our specific clients, those working in sort of the public sector, trying to um, the markets through policy is uh, you know, having to solve for multiple bottom lines. You know, it used to be that uh, the programs and services that we're um, focused on are, were delivering against a very straightforward objective, which was the reliability and the efficiency of the electric grid. And as a either primary or secondary outcome, greenhouse gas reductions. Uh, now we're tasked with making sure that these technologies and these solutions also are being delivered equitably that we are achieving both energy goals and societal goals and carbon goals. And these, all of these goals are in conflict in many times and to do, and to do so cost effectively. Um, and I think it's some of these like legacy standards for our programs and services that are no longer serving us like traditional cost effectiveness and economic models that, uh, you know, were used you know, at one time to make sure that the cost of energy that we were buying through these programs was sort of had parity with the actual cost to, you know, acquire, um, you know, um, from different uh, energy sources. But they end up sort of hamstringing us as we start to move towards other goals like equity, where it's much more costly in some cases to serve different populations than it is to serve others. Not because those populations are hard, but because we disinvested in them for so many years that now we have to catch up and reinvest and that costs money. Uh, so I don't know, Sarah, what would you add to it? I don't know. You know, I, I, all of that is right. And the, the other piece I thought of, which is, is just really different today. And I alluded it to it before is that, that, that this is a two-way relationship now and that, um, you know, in the past, the utility generated power and sent it to people. And now we have a world where people have cars or battery storage in their home or, um, you know, site solar that is being sold back into the grid. And so it's um, that creates a really different environment and relationship. And as Anne talked about, there's sort of policy implications to this. And while, you know, you might think like it's you know, I have a I have a battery and I'm selling back. That has no implications for others. It has implications for other communities um, and other people within your community. So that sort of interplay and sort of the web we've created is um, very beneficial to folks, but it also has challenges to it that still need to be worked through and figured out. About a year ago, President Biden uh, issued the Justice 40 executive order uh, now, that was just a year ago, and that seemed like a lifetime, but you all have been around <laughs> 10 years now and working in the industry. What were you all working on with states prior to the Justice 40 executive order, and what was it like before that? Yeah, that's a great question. 
I would say in early days, much of the work that we were focused on around equity was very much about elevating the voices and perspectives of those who were otherwise overlooked. Um, we have a niche in the work that we do in terms of uh, reaching communities and households that otherwise aren't being served or reached. So that could include folks that are what I would consider to be linguistic or we all consider to be linguistically isolated, meaning they have enough, they don't speak English with a degree of fluency that they're easy to reach through mass communications or, uh, you know, populations that are skeptical of the government aren't interested in engaging with large institutions that have good reason to be weary of, um, of organizations offering them services. Uh, as we've evolved, uh, that reputation that we built early on really, I think, gave us the credibility and voice to engage once policymakers started thinking about equity at a more global scale. So before it was sort of population specific, and now we're asking ourselves at the policy level, are these investments benefiting everyone as they should? And so the first state that we worked with um, very intentionally around this question was the state of New York through um, work that we are doing with NYSERDA. And the state of New York's legislation mandated that 40% of the benefits of the state's investments, and we're talking billions of dollars in New York State, were being received by disadvantaged communities. But in order to do that, um, you have to know and identify what a disadvantaged community is. You have to identify what a benefit is. You have to be able to track all of those things in order to make sure that dollars are being spent the way they're meant to from a policy standpoint. So our team was enlisted to help in that translation work and to really work with communities on the ground in New York State to uh, develop those standards and to integrate multiple voices in a highly diverse state in this policy sort of translation process to make sure that what New York was defining actually meets the needs of, of New Yorkers and the diversity of New Yorkers. And that work was largely informed uh, Justice 40 in many ways, too. So you'll see traces of, well, the legislation certainly has um, been directly adopted in the executive order, but the, um, the work that our team did as well, I think, has influenced in many ways some of the efforts the DOE is doing. Um, Sarah, what would you add to that as well? Yeah, I... The, the other place that I think about where we were, you, you know, there was precursors to that work is in Illinois, and they, they had legislation a number of years ago starting to really look at um, creating jobs through clean energy investments and making sure those jobs were going to folks who, um, you know, providing job training programs, economic opportunity development, and um, ha have since... Uh, the early days of that. And I always, I'm going to admit it, I always am like, which came first, Fija or Sija? Um, <laughs> but I believe Sija came first with the Clean Energy Jobs Act, and now it's the Future Energy Jobs Act. I hope I got that right. Um, but that's sort of the evolution of that, a continued focus on how do we make sure this clean energy tech uh, transition benefits people from all angles, including job creation, um, training and, and technical um, opportunities for folks to to take on the new roles that will come out of this industry. So that's another place where we um, have done considerable work that I would say was a was a precursor to some of what we're seeing now with Justice Forty and that real focus on economic opportunity, um, you know, training opportunity, job creation opportunity, and a focus on getting those opportunities into communities who 
often been left out of um, the opportunities that have come with the with the energy with energy infrastructure, jobs, and um, economic development. I know Ann mentioned Illinois um, in a conversation we had uh, a couple weeks ago, and it kind of came to mind that I would not think that they would be leading the green industry kind of in any means, but what she told me was um, really incredible. So I guess my question to y'all, what do they seem to be doing well and what have they been doing well in a state that might be considered purple that may not have all the green lights, so to speak? Yeah, that's a great question. I think they ask the right questions of their policies, you know, and um, that that might sound sound a little vague, but but the reality is, is that the folks who are working um, within the state are really, really pushing um, the envelope around uh, what can be achieved through these investments and and thinking very ambitiously. Now, you know, we're we're not unaccustomed to ambitious and stretch goals in the energy industry. We're always quick to throw out, you know, we're going to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by some percentage, by some date, and it can be more or less achievable depending on where you are and who you're working with. But the um, but the reality is, is that the state is, has really put forward some interesting concepts that we haven't seen emerged in even more progressive states. Um, one um, with the Illinois uh, Solar for All project and some of the mandates of that program um, is to increase uh, energy sovereignty. So what does energy sovereignty mean? Well, in the, the way that the state has framed it is to create as much independence from the electric grid and to reduce the cost of energy to uh, consumers who are otherwise, the language they're used may be disadvantaged or um, environmental justice communities. Uh, that concept is, a, is kind of a radical one. What it's saying is, um, you know, how might we enable a degree of autonomy and defection from the grid? Um, it can create a lot of anxieties uh, and it is to varying degrees possible right now with the technologies we have. But, um, Moving in that direction, I think that's a really interesting precedent. And um, and I do think that you see leadership in unexpected ways in the state as well. Yeah. And I, I, you know, one of the things they did in Illinois was there was a coalition that formed to push that, um, push those acts through. And they were, it was actually the Clean Energy Jobs Coalition. Um, and they they were formed um, to include groups from different, you know, perspectives. So different types of organizations. You had sort of the environmental advocacy organizations. You had um, environmental justice and and um, equity focused organizations. Um, they engaged labor in those discussions. Um, they and they. That coalition building, I think, was a really um, important key to their success in Illinois. Um, because those folks really reached out and sort of pulled in people from all different perspectives and opinions and sort of got them all on the same page as to why this was valuable for Illinois. And it, it was it was a critical um, piece of their being able to to move this legislation. There was a similar or is a similar coalition in in Michigan, and they just passed some pretty aggressive um, energy um, law acts in Michigan, including um, aggressive decarbonization goals and investment goals. And that was a similar model. There is a similar coalition. And I'm in the Midwest, so apologies for all the Midwest (laughs) references, but similar coalition in Michigan or in Minnesota, excuse me. Now, you know, Minnesota, Illinois, 
Michigan are definitely more, more slightly more blue than purple. Wisconsin is a solidly purple state, and we're looking at trying to mirror that same coalition building here. So I think that's another key to the success we've seen in states that are really moving thing for, things forward. You know, even some states out east we work in and, and met, reference New York, they have strong coalitions of people who want this mm-hmm. stuff to happen, and they're doing the work kind of at all levels to, to bring yeah. success. You know, kind of underscore what Sarah's saying, you know, these are also regions that have strong histories of coalition building and mobilization around other issues. So if you think about some of these industrial states in the Midwest, I mean, they have histories of, of major and very progressive and effective labor movements, you know, and it's, um, you know, it, I think it's easy to sort of write regions or states off when you think about energy. For example, we tend to think of the coasts as really driving a lot of that innovation. But again, centering sort of the people infrastructure in this question, you know, you're seeing states like, you know, as Sarah said, Illinois, Michigan, Minnesota, Wisconsin, I'm sure we're going to put it out there. Yes, Wisconsin, (laughs) you know, leveraging that all of that sort of underlying connective tissue in their communities, right? Those coalitions and I think it's actually a very compelling model for states like Arizona that are building right now in many ways and figuring out how to develop policy. With all these goals, we have challenges. Now, thinking about just the U.S. only, what are the main challenges in moving towards more better climate policy, energy and equity goals that we have today? Oh, what are our main challenges? Well, I think... I'm going to talk high level and then Sarah, you can add as, you know, maybe more detail. I think one of our primary challenges is alignment. Uh, We have so much investment and so many actors engaging in the space now as a result of this sort of influx of capital. We risk a number of things. I mean, one is um, moving forward and replicating efforts when public dollars could be better spent through, say, coalition building. We um, run the risk of confusing the marketplace. We run the risk of building up and scaffolding uh, programs and services that maybe aren't terribly well vetted or um, failing to set sort of consumer protections and standards around uh, these various investments and how they're being delivered. Um, We have seen this um, a bit in the past um, with, say, ARA funding, uh, where there was a lot of uh, market confusion around the uh, the actors uh, who are engaged in various R investments for energy efficiency. And, um, you know, one of the other risks I think of a lot is, are we creating sustainable uh, markets, right? We need markets that have continuity, not markets that are successful in the short term while we have money. So we should be really focused on market building. And I think to do that well, you have to overcome that by being more strategic, by thinking longer term, uh, by building coalitions and making sure that we're working together rather than having, you know, this huge number of folks kind of grabbing resources while you can get resources. Yeah. 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 I, I'd agree. I think um, it, it is about trying to make sure what is done is done. This is going to be kind of create like quickly, but also sustainably. Like we don't want to lose momentum. And there's that tension of we want, you know, things need to get out. Progress needs to be made. There's so much to do. 
but also not doing things so quickly that they're, they become short-term investments versus create, creating long-term change. And that's, that's a hard tension <laughs> to work through in coalition building, in looking at the programs that are trying to be rolled out from the you know, federal government on down as those dollars comes, come to states. And we think about how do we want to invest and roll out these dollars at the state level in a way that is meaningful today and meaningful in 10 years, if we can figure out how to do that. Um, so yeah, there's a lot, um, there's a lot at stake here. And there's a lot of things that we've learned, as Anne mentioned from ARA, but it is also a bit of a new world. And so it's, it, it is, it is just these tensions, you know, tension of fast and slow tensions of trying new things versus relying on things we've tried before. Um, and, and then also making sure that we are really hearing people and that um, we're not risking sort of, um, you know, performative approaches to addressing disadvantaged communities or, or um, making investments that we're really engaging people so that for the long term, folks are engaged in this energy conversation and that they are part of this long term solutioning and, and the benefits. Now, we're recording this episode in the week after Charlie Munger died, one of the great long-term investors famously saying that he just wants to buy great companies and just sit on his butt all day and not actually do anything and just let them do their thing. Um, do any individuals or organizations come to mind when you think about long-term planners and thinkers in this energy space? Yes, that's a great question. <laughs> Oh, is this where we're supposed to plug ourselves? Can we say ourselves? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll link to the website. www.ogo.com. <laughs> no, this is a really great point. I, where I get inspired really is um, not necessarily just like companies like ourselves that are doing work, but organizations and, and coalitions, groups mm -hmm. of people really pushing things forward. Um, I'm inspired by our clients every day. I think um, some of the work that NYSERDA is doing in New York is really powerful and compelling. Our clients um, at Comet, based in um, Illinois and the Chicago area, are doing really interesting work. Um, there is an organization uh, called Blacks and Green that um, has an incredible leader who is really, uh, through her advocacy and work, um, for environmental justice communities and her community has really changed the conversation in states like Illinois and also even changed the way that work is awarded um, by the federal government in some pretty key EPA contracts. And I find that incredibly inspiring. Uh, I would also say that um, there's I mean, there really are just this in, this sort of incredible group of organizations that are all kind of running at this um, from different vantage points. And no one is, in my mind, like um, crushing it over the next. I think they're all um, doing really compelling work and have a, a particular voice in the conversation that's that's important to listen to. Yeah, I think Anne's right. She and I went to a conference was it just last month, maybe the yeah. month before, last month in Detroit. And there were all all kinds of sort of new entrants or new individuals, people who maybe five years ago hadn't been thinking about this at all, but are coming into it with a very entrepreneurial spirit 
And this conference was specifically focused on race and equity in the energy transition. And for me, I think we have to to give space for all these um, new young entrepreneurs, folks who have typically been excluded from the energy industry, who have ideas, who are organizers, you know, community organizers who haven't really been thinking about this topic, but are now. Um, and, you know, I think that's who's, that's where we're going to see um, the sort of the best and most needed and I hope I hope wild in a good way change and um, outcomes out of this moment that we're in. Is there any particular client work that you all would like to mention that's addressing some of these challenges that we spoke about? Well, I think we've talked about some of it as as it stands. Um, I well, we have some an interesting project that we're leading right now. Uh, in Connecticut, where we're serving as the DEI consultant to the state in terms of its uh, energy uh, efficiency investments. And they're really grappling with very specific challenges around changing their frameworks for valuing the sort of programs that they're they're funding and how to measure the effectiveness of those programs. And they're tackling questions like, what is equity for the state of Connecticut and what does that look like? This is kind of wonky and maybe a little weedsy, but, uh, you know, traditionally the way it's been looked at is that you sort of receive what you pay in or um, everybody gets equal benefit um, based on based on their pay in. But again, we know that from an equity standpoint, parity is not our goal. Our goal is to make sure that we bring communities up and forward who have been marginalized or disinvested in either intentionally or unintentionally in the past which requires greater investment. But the rules, the regulations, the policies, the standards of measurement, uh, uh, program approvals, all of these things uh, are you know, built on a very specific model and have to be rethought in order to bring those things into balance. And so there's, there are groups working very, um, very intentionally to try to do that and to figure out what that means so that the state can move forward in the way that it's operating. Uh, and again, that seems kind of wonky, kind of detailed, but it will have a very material impact on who gets funded, how programs are funded, in what ways, and uh, how equitably. Yeah. 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 There's similar work happening in Wisconsin. That state's sort of acknowledging that they need to start with just understanding you know, who the customers are, who's been disadvantaged, what it looks like for them. Um, and and we're there's work in Wisconsin just starting, not as far along as Connecticut, um, that that we're supporting, and that you know starting to get at the importance of having a clear and shared vision for what equity is going to look like in this energy transition. Who's who's been historically disadvantaged? Um, where we need to invest those dollars um, to see. The, the types of benefit that we're looking for. And it's, it is, um, as we talked about, coalition building is important, and this is hard work, but this is hard work at the state levels too. Um, they don't own a lot of the data needed to understand this. You know, it sits with utilities or other entities. Um, there are politics at play that have to be considered when you're, you know, talking about this, this work and how these investments are going to be made. Um, and again, you have to make sure you truly are bringing in the folks that 
have been impacted and doing so in a way that's meaningful and long-term. And um, I think there's a lot of states uh, working to make progress. And I would expect if we had this conversation in one year, one year from now, Anne and I could probably point to 30 states that are starting to do this work and seeing really excellent progress. So we're right on the precipice of that. Mm -hmm. And then just before you ask your next question, I want to give you another example that I think is closer to home for, for Groundswell. Uh, this, the uh, city of Tucson and um, the New Building Institute are running a really interesting project funded by the Department of Energy to establish resilient and equitable building codes throughout the Southwest. And this is primarily uh, a collaboration, if you will, between uh, municipalities and actors in um, Arizona and New Mexico. And they, they smartly, not knowing um, how the uh, election would go for the governor's position, uh, built a coalition um, or built a team across both states recognizing that resiliency looks very different in the Southwest than it does in, say, the Northeast. But much of our code development, our code standards are um, really reflective of Northern climates and may not reflect the needs of the Southwest. Uh, codes drive what building like. Um, they set the standards for what we do when we're building critical infrastructure, and, and they're also interested in doing it equitably. So there's this incredible group of... Uh, municipalities and actors across both states who are going to be engaged in working together to build um, and advance resilient and more equitable building codes in the Southwest. And uh, I think it's going to have a, a very real impact on what what our cities look like, what our homes look like, what our businesses look like in the next you know, 10 to 15 years. And no one's done this before. So I think that's a very exciting thing too. And some of the progress we can expect to see coming from federal dollars as well as so many creative kind of grassroots teams are building. Now we've spoken about equity a lot. Um, for anybody that's in technology, um, if somebody is in technology, they are quick to say that it is the great equalizer and, you know, infallible and whatnot. Uh, there are tons of blind spots in technology. Could you briefly speak about how technology can go awry and not actually be as equitable as one might um, think it is? Yeah. Another great question. I'll plug another client <laughs> that opportunity. <laughs> so we're we're um, working on uh, a project for one of our uh, large Midwestern clients where we're supporting them in the development of an emerging technology portfolio. And uh, the goal is to identify uh, new technologies, solutions, or even program models in this case that could be um, used to meet their goals, the state's goals, and this um, organization's goals specifically. Part of that uh, process is really identifying the, the value of these technologies and um, whether or not they're viable from a technical standpoint, right? Do they meet their utilitarian goal? So for example, in our industry, that's often saving energy or, um, or reducing demand. But then, uh, you know, our team is very focused on, are these also market viable technologies? Will they be delivered in the way that um, we expect them to be? Our market actors set up to deliver these technologies and in many of these programs and in particular in Illinois, um, are they capable of um, meeting diverse needs and uh, perhaps equitable needs? And so um, I think that's an interesting model when we're thinking about tech development because it's 
not just looking at one technology over another, although that's part of it, but also thinking about a portfolio of opportunities that could be delivered um, to meet a set of goals. We've also seen um, specifically instances where, you know, we just assume that people are going to be able to adopt technologies and they, they may not necessarily have access. And that's one of the most common instances where we see that. So uh, we um, had a, a work that we did in the Southeast where uh, programs were funding what we would consider sort of mid or upstream models where you're, you're actually um, creating incentives higher up in the market to get more product to the shelves um, that to, to that it meets our energy goals. So some more energy efficient product on the shelves. And we found that um, access to those technologies, even though they were being funded, say, at the distributor or the manufacturer level, weren't actually getting to all communities equally based on just the partners or the market partners mm -hmm. that were identified in the in the project. And so that was one way that um, that a seemingly benign decision like who you partner with as a market actor um, or as a retailer can have really um, meaningful impacts on who has access to uh, the technologies that we're moving forward. Yeah. Um, you know, Anne, I was, I think Kidget is another good oh, example what? of this, which was um, their uh, EBSC, so electric vehicle service equipment manufacturer, but really a, a company um, owned by um, I, Paul Francis <laughs> out of LA, who's really trying to make sure that this EV charging infrastructure gets into communities that have been um, disadvantaged. So it gets into black and brown communities in the cities. And, you know, they're a, a great example of sort of, um, you know, we've done something to create equal access, but doesn't exactly create equal access is that um, in the um, infrastructure bill, I believe there's there's language that says there has to be um, electric vehicle charging infrastructure like every 50 miles. Like that's the goal to get it every 50 miles with the idea that that makes it accessible to everyone, except if you live in the middle of one here and 50 miles away and there's no infrastructure within your community, it certainly doesn't make it accessible to everyone. So it's both like, you know, equal access to technologies and how we think about, as Anne mentioned, the design of the programs and or the different deployments we're trying to undertake to get get folks sort of engaged in this new energy economy and opportunity. And that's, I think, a great example of a really excellent intention um, that leaves a lot of holes in the market for people who, um, you know, are going to need access um, as we transition. And Kidget as an organization is really trying to address that by looking at how they can create a model that uh, gets that infrastructure into communities and creates um, oftentimes a, a sort of mechanism to earn back for those investments for the folks who who invest in bringing the infrastructure into their community. Um, so that's a, I think that's another you know client that we think about um, that's faced faces some of these challenges that we see where like the technology exists, it doesn't mean it's accessible to everyone or easily accessible. Well, and Sarah, you have to plug the, um, the white paper. And yeah. The story map. <laughs> yes. So we, we did pretty extensive research looking at um, some of these, what we'd call charging deserts. And it, I, we do have a great story map and um, 
white paper on the topic, but it's interesting because when you see it, you can't unsee it. So the map kind of shows a big desert in the middle of sort of the LA area. And it's very clear who's being left out of that energy transition and the challenge those those deserts sort of um, create for for folks as they're trying to um, you know keep up with the technologies that are coming out there and as we're more globally trying to to do go get through this transition. As consultants, you all work with multiple different constituent groups, policymakers, technologists, program designers. Is there any best practice, kind of top best practice that comes to mind as far as bringing all of these different groups together? I think there are many, I, for sure. But I think the um, the biggest thing that, that we really try to focus on as an organization is really coming to it with an understanding of um, the needs and interests of those in the room. Mm -hmm the specific competencies and skills that they're bringing, the assets that they represent in their community, human or otherwise, and um, really understanding what our common goals and objectives are. We tend to shortchange those steps and those processes and start working before we align. And um, I think to our detriment often in running complex programs and complex markets, uh, we need to make sure that our stakeholders are defined, understood, engaged, and developed before we start running at a specific objective or goal. Um, and that we maintain those relationships and build them and continue to build them throughout. And when we say stakeholders, we mean everything from, you know, your regulator to folks in the governor's office to you know, municipalities, uh, grassroots organizers, and even end users, business owners, homeowners, all of these folks. Um, and, you know, by doing that, you know, setting up that foundation, you really create, you know, what Sarah called out earlier, these sort of coalition, this group of um, folks that are capable to sort of buoy and move your program forward. But often we find people do this late in the game. Uh, or do it because they have to, not really recognizing how valuable it is in it as an asset to their organization or their goals. Yeah, I think that's right. I I, I think that's the most important piece is um, slowing down enough to to make sure everybody's um, needs have been heard, perspectives have been considered. That effort of coalition building, which I, I can feel very difficult when you're looking at all the different people in the room, is 100% worth the investment in time. And if, if you don't do it, people will call you out on it. You know, if you come into communities and say, we've got this great thing for you, Here, how, here's how it's going to benefit you. You can come in giving dollars, giving, um, you know, building parks. If you haven't engaged community members, engage the people who are sort of living in, um, in, the in the investment, in the development, who are in the communities you're trying to serve, in those conversations. Um, I think it, it, will, it will slow things in the end versus taking that time up front and really, really building trust um, and hearing from people about their lived experiences and what they need and coming sort of together to the solution. And it, um, again, it feels hard when I said earlier, you know, we're kind of facing dueling priorities. We need to get things out fast, but we need to do it right. It needs to be sustaining. And that is going to be critical uh, in the success of sort of this 
what I believe will ultimately be the clean energy transition we've been working for for many, many decades. I think that's going to be the key to success. Always our final question is around what you all are investing that is never going to change. Now, the thought problem is attributed to Warren Buffett, who pointed out that humans are really bad at predicting the future, but it's very easy to predict things that will never change um, in human psychology or in society. Uh, then, you know, Jeff Bezos um, kind of popularized the quote with he's investing in things that never change. And the one that he invested most in is the fastest shipping times possible because people will never want short, slower shipping times. What are you all investing in that you think will never change at a room advising? I feel like there's a meta theme in this interview. So you might be able to uh, <laughs> predict this yourself, but I would say um, I would say that we're fundamentally investing in um, the sort of joy and um, resilience of communities and people. Yeah. Yeah, we were having I was having a conversation with a couple of our teammates last week and we were talking through a number of things. And at the end of I, I think every sentence, someone was like, but what about the humans? What about the humans? And I think that's that's the thing, you know, where, as Anne said, and where we're investing in is that this is all about human beings. And so we are so invested in centering these discussions around around human beings, around the people that need to benefit from and whose lives this work needs to enable. That, um, yeah, I think the thing we're, we're investing in that we won't change is, is people, communities. Well, Ann and Sarah, thanks very much for coming on our show. If listeners are interested in learning more about what you're doing, where can I point them to online? You can find us at www.illumeadvisingadvising.com. Excellent. And Sarah, thanks again for coming on. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. This is fun. so much fun. And thanks to you, my dear listener, for tuning in. And I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I have. If you enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing and leaving a good review. Take care and see you soon.